Welcome to the Grace in Common podcast, a podcast between four friends, four theologians from four countries on three continents. My name is James Eglinton. I teach theology at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. I'm joined this week by my friends Corey Brock, a pastor at St. Columba's Free Church here in Edinburgh in Scotland, Grace Utanto, assistant professor of systematic theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. Normally, we would have with us Marina Stejong, the pastor of the Osterpark Kerk in Amsterdam and of the Neo-Calvinism Research Institute in Utrecht, but he's not with us this week. We are joined by our friend, um, by a guest, Colin Hansen, to talk about his new book, Tim Keller, His Spiritual and Intellectual Formation. So it's great to see you guys. Welcome back to another episode of Grace in Common. Colin, excellent to have you with us. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks, guys. This is going to be fun, I think. Yeah, well, we're looking forward to talking with you. Um, about your new book on Tim Keller. Uh, so, I mean, regular listeners will be well familiar with the the gist of this podcast that we gather together to talk about um, neo-Calvinism as a theological tradition, to think about its history, to think about its content, uh, and also to think about interesting ways that um, that it, it works in the world today. And um, part of our unique angle as a podcast is that we bring insights on this from our four different countries and from different continents. Um, so we're really interested in your book um, anyway, because of its focus on Tim Keller. We've had Tim on the podcast before. Uh, he's someone that we all know and um, someone who's who's a fascinating example of lots of different streams of neo-Calvinist thought as they, as they flow together. And he, he himself is such an unusually um, influential person as well. So to try and make sense of neo-Calvinism in the world today, um, we really need to spend some time thinking and talking about Tim Keller. I mean, I think that we you couldn't really give a good account of neo-Calvinism today without factoring him in somehow. Um, Corey and Gray's forthcoming T&T Clark handbook on neo-Calvinism um, also has a chapter by Tim Keller, um, but it's great to be able to talk about him with you on the podcast today. Um, so I, I guess the opening kind of question I'd like to ask is um, just before we start to think about um, about Tim Keller himself, um, how do you how do you see the the kind of book that you've written in terms of genre? So it's so the book is subtitled to spiritual and intellectual formation. One way that we could think about it is that it's this it's this the story of all of the different threads that woven together give us Tim Keller's theology and Tim Keller's person. Um, but I guess you know the, the umbrella term biography is a pretty big one that a lot of different ways of thinking about how to tell a life story can um, can all fit underneath. So yeah, talk us through how you understand the kind of book that you've written. <laughs> oh boy, James, I I wish I had a good answer to that question. Uh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> kind of made up a new genre in here. I don't really know how to explain it because I don't think biography is quite an apt term because I don't really cover. Keller's influence. Um, th- that's why it's about his intellectual and spiritual formation and his influences, but not his influence. Um, in part because he's a living figure, we don't know what the what the you know ultimately what his influence is going to be. Also, when I'm talking with historians and theologians, you know that you really can't account for somebody until you you've had some time to be able to see how that plays out and. And to be able to have a lot of, of dialogue back and forth, and so I, I couldn't do that. It's certainly not in the critical biography uh, genre, like James, your own work on Bavink, and so I didn't really find a good model for what I was going for. What I did know is that this is the only kind of book that Tim would ever agree to work with me on, or anybody on, and it was the only kind of book that I could that I could do. Um, being close with him, having worked with him for a long time, wasn't going to write something that was going to be, you know, in that critical biography genre. By the way, I'm, of course, I'm using a technical term there. I'm not saying there isn't any criticism of Tim in there. There is from from a number of different folks in different areas, or even Tim himself, looking looking back on his life. But I think because you guys know Tim, you've had him on the podcast. You know that I tried to write a book that reflects who he is. And he is a unique figure who, when talking about himself, is very quick, very free in talking about other people. 
He's very quick to sort of jump off to the side and begin to enter into a discourse on such and such a figure. Um, so he does not talk about, here's my perspective on what we should be doing apologetically in this age. No, he'll go back and he'll talk about something with Bavink that he learned reading the other week. Um, that's just the way that he talks. Now, if you're coming at Tim from one different ang one angle or two angles, you might think, oh, well, that's interesting. He was really influenced by Bavink. Yeah, but when you look at his entire corpus, his entire history, his sermons, his books, which I did, of course, for this book, you see that he does this with dozens of people. There may be, there may be one person or two people or three people that he has a bigger influence on or, or that had more of an influence on him, and it may change over time. But, I mean, it's, it's literally a list of dozens of people, which, of course, I try to cover in the book. So, yeah, James, I don't have a great answer on the genre because it's, it's not quite a biography. Hmm. It's certainly not in the critical biography genre. But it is a, I think, hopefully, a unique exploration of the making of a minister who synthesizes various influences in ways that we really haven't quite seen before. Thanks. That's really helpful. So I think that, um, well, I find it helpful not to have really restrictive wooden categories for how you could approach telling someone's life story. And I think that there's a certain sense in which you as the writer have to be a bit reactive to what you find. And the way that you go about writing your book is itself some kind of commentary interpretation of the person that you're trying to write about. So that's something that I think really works well in your book with this angle of trying to um, uncover the spiritual influences, those who formed him intellectually, and to try and get at exactly the, the point you were just making, that when you talk to Tim at different points, um, you, you're immediately beckoned into a conversation about what he's currently reading, and he's always trying to absorb, um, you know, he, he has this like relentless thirst for knowledge, and um, he's just this voracious reader who shares his reading with whoever he's talking to, something I've always really enjoyed um, in even talking now. to Tim. Even now. Even yeah, now. I mean, we're yeah, like in now. the midst of any... He he called me this this week, and he was talking about an, an event that we're working on together. And he said, "You know, I, I really want to talk about Louise Perry's book on the sexual revolution. Like that's what I really want to talk about. I'm really excited about that." And you're just thinking, "Okay, that's wonderful." But that is a consistent theme, as you guys have known him, especially you, James, over the years. Like that is a consistent experience for anybody yeah. who who knows Tim. And that's what I wanted to give the readers was that kind of experience. What is it like to talk to Tim? Well, hopefully the book captures that dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. So he's, he's such a receptive um, thinker. Talk to us about the challenges of writing on a, someone who's currently with us. Yeah. yeah well, I already covered a little bit of that uh, because we just don't know how the story is going to end. And we don't know what the ultimate influence is going to be. But I think this is a unique podcast to talk about some of the very basic difficulties of biography and historiography, because how you might look at somebody five years after they die, 50 years after they die, 100 years after they die, is totally different, possibly, depending mm. on scholarly trends, depending on global events. Who knows how many different factors could intercede? Of course, in a in a podcast about, about neo-Calvinism, and we think about the early 20th century, uh, mid-20th century, late 19th century, all of the change, you know, how different, James, when I think about your own work on Bavink, do we maybe look back and on Bavink and Kuiper in light of what happened not only World War One but then also even World War II and their families and the legacy long-term and the implications of that that might cause us to reflect back on some of what they wrote and some of what they did in their lives. So that is a that is a very primary challenge is you just really don't you don't know the full story there. Another dynamic in there is that especially if you are close to the subject, you've got to be really careful there because you need to be accurate, but you also need to be truthful. Um, otherwise, you don't have any credibility with the readers, and, and rightfully so. And so I wanted to be accurate in a way that Tim and Kathy in particular would look at the book and say, oh, yes, okay, that is a true story. At the same time, there's no sense in which they were saying okay, well, you just, you can't say this in there or, or, or that. I mean, 
there were I wanted to be respectful of certain things that they wanted to talk about or not talk about. But in the end, it's my interpretation, as you alluded to before. It's not their story as they wanted to tell it. It's my interpretation of their story in concert with them, but especially with the insight from a lot of other different people in their lives. And that might be the maybe most important aspect of this book. Somebody might imagine that I would sit down with Tim, you know, day one, say, hey, Tim, just tell me your life story. Just talk talk with me about everything. That is definitely not how this process played out. I I got some regular feedback from Tim, but I really didn't talk with him much until my research was largely complete because I thought, well, first, if he didn't ever say it in his sermons, if he never wrote about it in his many books, if I can't find it in his white papers, then probably it's not that big of an influence. Beyond that, I wanted to get perspective from other people. And I, you know, I'm a journalist, and so that's a pretty typical thing to be talking to to eyewitnesses. And I think that's what gives the, the book a, a different flavor is that you're seeing his move to New York or his move to Hopewell in Virginia in particular, not just through the eyes of Tim, because he's not necessarily the best person to talk about himself because he doesn't enjoy doing it. You're talking to, oh, the best man at the Keller's wedding. What did he think about them moving to Hopewell? And that's where you, I think you find a much more interesting story, which I'll just repeat it here from the book. It was really memorable for me. That was when uh, Bruce Henderson had said, yeah, when the Kellers moved to um, Hopewell, Virginia, after Gordon Conwell, I thought, wow, um, they must have been desperate. And I said, absolutely, they were desperate. Tim and Kathy couldn't find a job in the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, uh, because it was a new denomination, R.C. Sproul had introduced them to it. There wasn't, there weren't many positions in New England, which is where they wanted to stay. And Bruce says, "No, no, 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 Colin, <laughs> you don't understand. I mean, the church must have been really desperate <laughs> to bring the Kellers down." And he said, "I they just would not have been very impressive." Okay, well, you know, that's not the way Tim and Kathy are going to talk about themselves. Not because of some sort of arrogance, but it's just not the way you talk about yourself. It is the way the best man at your wedding might talk about you, though. And so hopefully that's what I offer that's unique Mm. in this book. But uh, you're right, James, there are a number of different challenges and limitations, but also opportunities because now, hopefully going forward, one thing that future students of Keller and his work will see is, okay, this is an understood account from his lifetime of what he was trying to accomplish. Okay, that's that's something to work with. It doesn't mean it's definitive. It doesn't mean it's authoritative in, in, in for all times. It just means, okay, that's an understood account from his time from his lifetime about what he was trying to do. Hopefully, that's valuable in future generations. Absolutely. Yeah. Colin, what would you go ahead? What Corey. surprised you? Uh, sorry. What what surprised you as you uh, worked on this project about Tim and? Perhaps along with that, what did you find most compelling at the end of it about his ministry? Um, one of the things that struck me as I read your book uh, was a consistent motif about Tim's heart and his motivations. You know, you, you opened it by saying he, he never wanted to sell a book in Nashville or Birmingham or Jackson, Mississippi or somewhere like that. Right. You know? um, and I, I just found it such a compelling motif across the book. But what did, what did you learn? What did you find most compelling? What surprised you? Uh, what did you enjoy most about it? Well, Cora, I, I mean, I I think just about everything surprised me. I, it's, I think that's typical of most readers' experience so far from the book is at once you recognize Tim, and at the same time you're thinking, wow, I, well, I didn't know much of that. I really didn't understand this about him. And I would say the the, the thing that surprised me the most, um, just in term personally, um, and I'll connect this back to this to this podcast because it's relevant um otherwise, but I think personally what surprised me most was the role that his family had played. It's it's axiomatic that all of us are influenced by our family. It was simply surprising to me that I just didn't know much of anything about Tim's family. I knew about his brother Billy 
uh, who had died of AIDS, but I really did not know much else about that. So clearly what was surprising to me most there was what what Tim had preached at his brother's funeral in 1998 and the and the role that that message had played. I'm not going to give it away. You got to go read the book to get all of that. But um that that part surprised me. The the role of his mother in his life um in some ways positive in other ways most certainly negative and especially related to his um uh, to his to his faith journey, his rebellion. Uh, I had heard from family members, especially Kathy and their their three boys, that Tim is very much an upstanding citizen. They call him Boy Scout. He was a Boy Scout, an Eagle Scout. Just really important to do the right thing. And Tim is the oldest of three, so you naturally think of him in that parable of the two sons in Luke 15 as the older brother. But only when you understand his mother and his own experience in the 1960s and 70s as a college student around his his conversion do you see he's also the younger brother in that parable. No wonder he gravitated so much toward that was because of his rebellion, his running away from the Lord. So that was certainly a surprising aspect there. Um, I would say to, it was interesting. A, a review criticized me for saying that I didn't talk more about Tim's call to ministry, I got to say, it didn't even occur to me to ask about his call to ministry because there was never a moment as a Christian where he was not ministering in a in a professional or a semi-professional capacity. It just seemed to be so natural as the outgrowth of his conversion. He's He's essentially been, ever since 1970, spring of 1970, end of sophomore year, um, at Bucknell University in Pennsylvania. He's basically just been the same person in that sense. Evangelistic, apologet I mean, we're doing apologetics, reading voraciously, discipling people, teaching. That's been him. Uh, obviously, he's matured quite a bit in all kinds of different ways, but that's just been him from the very beginning. Um, I will say then the other thing that surprised me most, and this came late in the process as I was going back and forth with Tim, was the influence of neo-Calvinism, and of Bavink in particular. That surprised me, because it's not quite as evident explicitly in his writings and in his sermons. He's not quoting the neo-Calvinists to the same extent that he quotes other figures. He's primarily a student of British evangelicalism, that certainly in his conversion and through a lot of his understanding. So I was, I largely thought of him, and I still think this is, is basically true, but as a kind of British evangelical in an American context. Because one thing that it might be easy to misunderstand or take for granted about um, about Tim is that he's not, fu- he's not primarily influenced by some of the major trends of the 20th century that most American evangelicals were. In other words, he's he's not primarily formed by the fundamentalist modernist controversies of the early 20th century. He is very much influenced, part of this is just generational, by the Jesus movement. But to think that such a significant influential evangelist would not, in the United States, during the mid to late 20th century, would not be influenced by Billy Graham is pretty odd. But he wasn't, because intellectually he didn't really resonate with him, regionally he didn't resonate with him, and he was thinking much more as a, as a John Stott-style British evangelical. Now... You guys are the experts here, but it made sense going on as I late in the process as I looked back that neo Calvinism was not necessarily the belief system that he wore on his sleeve, but now that I was able to to look back on it, I could see oh it was the underpinnings of so much of what he did throughout much of his ministry and especially in the latter say third of his ministry and so. That was that made more sense, but he was much more explicit about that late, kind of in our process, and it might have had a little bit something to do with a certain chapter he was writing for somebody's book. <laughs> so I, I can imagine that we'll want to f- focus the discussion on Tim and neo-Calvinism and, and how this fits into the bigger picture. Um, but just before we carry on with that, I actually want to direct the question around to Corey and to Gray, as people who've also read the book, about what surprised you. Uh, you know, you've both um, 
listened to lots of Tim's sermons, I guess met him at different points as well, read his material. Uh, There are a few things that that surprised me in reading the book, but I'd love to hear your um, points of surprise. Yeah, I think for me anyway, the material on Westminster Theological Seminary was a little bit surprising um, in the sense of the ways in which Tim tried to learn from all the different streams at Westminster, right? So whether it's at Clowney's Biblical Theology, especially Harvey Kahn's Missiology, and even a little bit about Van Til's apologetic there, um, it was really surprising to me how integrated he was with the Westminster trajectories, perhaps. He didn't just pick a side, he really wanted to learn from every single side within Westminster. And it was a very multifaceted campus, I think, when he was there. And I think when you were at Westminster Seminary, that wouldn't necessarily have been the narrative, perhaps, that would have been talked about at Westminster about Tim Keller. Um, I think he was probably seen as an inheritor of Harvey Kahn's methodology, but not necessarily of, let's say, talked about in relation to other doctrinalist or apologetic streams within Westminster. So that was illumining. And also, I think I didn't really know much about Gordon Conwell um, and how actually reformed Gordon Conwell was when, when Tim was there, perhaps. Um, I did not know much about Roger Nicole, for instance. And it was interesting to me that when you opened the chapter on neo-Calvinism in your um, I don't know what it called the, the book, the biography, the intellectual formation book that Colin has written here. Right. It's six pages there, and it's mainly about Roger Nicole. I wouldn't have associated the name Roger Nicole with neo-Calvinism. And of course, as I was um, reading the book, thinking about neo-Calvinism, and, and you mentioning here how late into the game that was, I think definitely a question we would have for you later on, perhaps Colin, you could address, is how much of the neo-Calvinism material was kind of a, a retrospective was Tim surprised himself at how much neo-Calvinism shaped him? You know, maybe he's, he's reading the new Bobbing material, he's writing the chapter for this handbook that may came out. Um, and is he thinking to himself, oh, actually, this has been there all along, and I didn't realize it. Or was he thinking, oh, this is an organic sort of um, consequence of everything that I've been learning. And exactly, I've been a neo-Calvinist all along, and I, I've always known it, if that makes sense. So um, those are some observations I had and questions. Yeah, well, uh, I can I can I can say something, and then maybe Colin can pick up on on that thread. And I think that's an interesting thread. Um, I think uh, well, you guys have mentioned a lot of the things. Colin mentioned several of the things that struck me, but one of the things was that I really enjoyed reading was Tim's deep pastoral um, focus in Hopewell. I I was uh, moved and. Um, helped, I think, by what you wrote about the time and, and the commitments he made to the people in Hopewell. And that, that entire section uh, was both convicting and, and helpful to, to me. I mean, one of the questions that I think that I had uh, was just to what degree did, did that change in Redeemer as it as it exploded, and and um, that, that was a, a question that came, came to my mind after reading the Hopewell section. Yeah, and I can chip in a couple of things that surprised me as well. Um, so I, I didn't know the story about his brother Billy, for example. I had no idea at all. That was really um, stirring stuff to read. Um, I found uh, the Gordon Conwell phase, so I knew that he'd studied there, but I, like Corey and, and, and Greg mentioned, I had no idea really of what that was like there at the time. Um, I mean, some of the things like he got a C in his preaching class, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's just fantastic. Um, that's, that's heartening for the rest of us to hear. Um, but also, I mean, the, the picture of Kathy in that period as well, with the, with the way that they're both actually being very formed theologically in lots of different surprising ways. And then you bring Elizabeth Elliot into the story at that crucial point in their lives. I mean, there, there's so many influences there that I just, I, I, I didn't know to expect them when I, when I opened the book in the first place to read the manuscript. So um, lots of things like that surprised me. Yeah, isn't that, isn't that interesting? And that's been the common experience, James, that even people who seem to know Tim pretty well, they're just things that he doesn't disclose. He just doesn't talk about. He he doesn't get into, or you might feel like you're having a very expansive conversation with him and never have heard anything about Gordon Conwell or Westminster Seminary or those phases and see how they all they all go together. Um, Gray, I think about the your comments on Westminster in particular. I think it's helpful for people to know that he's a contemporary of Sinclair Ferguson, 
So they would have been junior faculty members around the same time. And also, Westminster was the primary place that Tim began to identify the threefold um, dynamics of, of reformed communities. He's building off the work of, of Noel, of Marsden, of, of other scholars, originally looking at the Dutch reformed influences in the United States. Um, but then Tim would ultimately apply them more broadly to reform theology. And in fact, when Tim helped to start the Gospel Coalition in 2005, that was the exact message that he gave. He was borrowing it there from Noel, but of course you guys know that Noel was pulling it from others. The idea that there would be a culturalist stream, that's clearly the neo-Calvinist one primarily, that there'd be a pietist stream, that's a little bit closer to the Puritan one, then there's a doctrinalist stream, which would be the Princeton uh, you know, group. And so as Noel applies that, he takes it back to Jonathan Edwards, and describes the way Reformed theology fragments throughout the 19th century and ultimately weakens, which is a significant aspect of my own work on writing observationally about the, the trends and developments in Reformed theology. But you guys know, as a, as a journalist who's trying to do some historical work here, when Tim Keller stands up and he's describing that dynamic, and he's hoping to cast a vision for what the Gospel Coalition could become, you got to understand he's trying to talk about himself in there. He's trying to say, I'm trying to bring these things together because I think they should be brought together. So he might still be, he might still have an emphasis on the culturalist. He might still have an emphasis on the pietist, as he says, they're kind of his shared, shared number one. But it doesn't mean there's no doctrinalist stream in there. And that's where he would say, Westminster's experience really helped me with that. It wasn't there before. So maybe could you address exactly as well within, I mean, the Westminster conversation, the Roger Nicole conversations involved in this too, that question that a lot of people had brought about, right? I think even Kevin DeYoung's recent uh, write-up on this right. mentioned this, right? How much was neo-Calvinism really a self-conscious formation for him from the very beginning? Or how much was it a later discovery that he now is looking back and seeing, oh, actually, there's traces of this in the past, and I want to ally myself with it now? <laughs> I know Tim is going to listen to this podcast, so I'm going to walk in with some trepidation <laughs> into this one. Um, this is my interpretation. This is my personal interpretation. Uh, there are clearly some aspects there that are early. That's the whole Roger Nicole introducing him to Bavinck's work and wonderful works of God, correct me if I'm wrong, right, that he read mm -hmm. back then. So, But as you guys know, <laughs> I mean, this is the group to talk to about this. Just isn't much in translation back then. He just didn't have access to a lot of different stuff. So at one level, who knows how Tim Keller would have turned out or what he would have done if you guys had been doing your work, you know, back then a generation ahead of him as opposed to a generation behind him. Um, so that's significant to think about there. So I think, I think it's pretty clear that he's got a lot of those instincts. And then by the time I started to get to know Tim in the 2000s, he is well in the neo-Calvinist stream, specifically as it relates to cultural engagement and specifically as it relates to vocation. But I would have associated him at the time more closely with Kuiper, not because he was necessarily quoting Kuiper all the time, because he wasn't, but because that was the time period in Reformed theology in the United States where you had this massive interest in, in Kuiper, especially related to the need to put the gospel in in application in our in our in in life and keep in mind also a couple of Tim's longtime interlocutors in fact Tim and I did a, a book together edited a book together with Michael Gerson and Pete Weiner who worked in the Bush White House so at the time you've got a lot of leading evangelical thinkers in the United States who are trying to conceive of how they should put their poli you know their faith into practice with their politics so that George W. Bush period in there of the 2000s, there's a lot of discussion about cultural engagement, about politics, even though that's not Tim's primary forte, and a lot of conversation about vocation, faith and work. So there's a lot of Kuiper influence there. But then, as I document in the book, by 2008, Tim is making a significant intellectual shift that's largely informed by his exposure through James Davison Hunter of the Social Critics, chief among them Charles Taylor, but including several others, that's when he begins searching for a viable apologetic project 
that will work in a post-Christendom West. And I think that that just happens to coincide, especially, James, with your work and your relationship with him, and more broadly, what you guys are all involved with is the neo-Calvinism broadly understood, but as Tim is, is, is applying it himself, the apologetic angle seems to be the one that he resonates with the most, and Bavink begins to emerge for him as a model of the modern and orthodox dynamic at, at, at the core of neo-Calvinism that I think resonates so much with him as somebody who previously had been had seen Jonathan Edwards as a model, and before that had seen John Calvin as a model. And so I think Tim begins to see himself and understand himself and what he believe his project in continuity with a broader Reformed tradition of being on the cusp of modern argument with Orthodox theology in Calvin, in Edwards, in Bavink, as you go from century to century to century. So that's how I understand it, and I think his friendship and relationship and his respect for you guys on this podcast has helped him to see that this is a a home for me. And one of the you know it's interesting. This this um this may be noteworthy. Um, a lot of people would associate Tim because of his fans, his you know people who read him, listen to him with N.T. Wright. And in fact, this came up when we were talking about the. Um, we're talking about endorsers for the book. And I thought, boy, I really don't see a lot of overlap with him on NT mm-hmm. right? Not on apologetics, not on his view of the Reformation. These are pretty core to Tim. I don't really see that. But somebody he saw a lot of resonance with, and he said, we disagree in some substantial ways, including women in ministry, was Richard Mao. Mm. That makes a lot more sense, of course, because that's very much mm. the neo-Calvinist tradition right there. Okay, <laughs> that's a long answer to your question there, Graham. That's incredibly helpful. Um, and I think it really explains the ways in which perhaps he was misinterpreted. And, and he's a point of controversy in so many people in Reformed theological circles. And I think, you know, the term neo-Calvinism, as we've been talk- talking about in this podcast, has been co-opted by perhaps receptions of neo-Calvinism that have been less than helpful. And Boving hasn't been the center figure in receptions of neo-Calvinism in North America. And I think now people see right. Bavink Keller connection, perhaps they would, they, they'll be helped to see actually what he's doing is very much rooted in this orthodoxy, even if it's not necessarily being heralded on a sleeve at every point that that makes sense. Um, and so I, I just wonder if you were, I mean, one of the reasons why I'm guessing you wrote a book like this while he was still a living figure is you think that there are some important lessons to be gleaned from the formation of Keller, right? Um, what would be the top, perhaps, two or three insights that you would say, okay, if students were to read this right now, ministers were to read this right now, here's what we think we should be getting from Keller's formation. Yeah, I have a, I have an urge. This is a, a big question. I have an urge to answer it quickly just so that I can uh, try to find more ways to spin the tables on you guys and start asking you a bunch of questions related to these fascinating things here. Um, number one, though, very clearly, it's just lifelong learning. Um, is what we talked about already, that he's in the middle of these cancer treatments and he's just excited about what he's reading and he wants to talk about it and he wants to, he wants to inculcate that. That is, that is just who he's been from the very beginning. I loved, I loved the comment from uh, Tim and Kathy's dear friend, Louise Midwood, who said, we'd go to the lectures at Gordon-Conwell and then we'd all go back after class to Tim's room. He'd redo the lectures and they would still be faithful to what we just heard, but so much more interesting and insightful. That's just that's just him. He's a lifelong learner, just enthusiastic about about passing that along. And and that's that's why I, I connect it back to my core concept in the book, which is borrowed from a a self observation of Tim in 2014 uh, for the Gospel Coalition with John Piper and Don Carson. He describes learning as rings on a tree. And I thought, how helpful is it to think Tim is always that, that gospel guy at the core. He's a Jesus guy, he's a gospel guy at the core, but then grows over time, never gets past it. It's always who he is at the core, but he continues to grow and expand. And I think sometimes the temptation for younger, younger leaders is, is, to, is to jump from thing to thing, from fad to fad. And you could easily have identified that in Tim's life of, oh, well, he's 
the Puritans one day and Whitfield the other day and and Bavink the next. Day. I mean, he just keeps jumping. No, no, they they just become synthesized in that rings on a tree of part of a comprehensive whole that's all serving the heart there in this in the center. So it's it's a lifelong learning. It's developing those rings on a tree to mature as a Christian leader, as a thinker, as a pastor. But then also, um, it's it's the way he's able to learn from people, just about everybody, and and find somewhere to fit that in without having to agree with them on everything. Tim is not a tribal thinker. It is so incredibly rare in this algorithmic age to find somebody who is not a tribal thinker. They don't just say, oh, well, I can't learn from her because she's not in my tribe. No, man, he, I mean, he's just plundering the Egyptians and, ev- I mean, everywhere. He's grabbing over here, he's grabbing over here, and he's putting it together. I do mm-hmm. understand that that can be dangerous. It can feel scattered, incoherent. Maybe that's just Tim who can able to be who can do that when in his mind, but I I find so much respect. I have so much respect, and I think our age would benefit from more examples of saying I can learn from you, even if I disagree with you. Let me just go back to the Richard Mao thing uh, for a second. I mentioned Tim has substantial disagreements with N.T. Wright, specifically about justification and the Reformation. That's why he keeps recommending Michael Horton's two volumes on justification. Okay, but if you're going to listen to Tim, who is more of a cultural apologist, if he's going to recommend the number one book on on the resurrection of Christ, it's going to be N.T. Wright. Sure enough, when did he read it? Through a health crisis. That's Tim. He's going through a health crisis, so he thinks, I'm going to read N.T. Wright's book on the resurrection in there. And the same thing with Richard Mao. He's going to say, yeah, we have a lot of overlap, especially in our views toward culture. But yeah, we also disagree substantially on women in ministry. And as you guys will remember, James, especially you, Richard was one of the most important figures to come to Tim's defense through the 2017 Kuiper Prize mm-hmm. controversy mm-hmm. there. And he was, and, and Richard, same way, said, oh, I disagree with Tim on this, uh, on these, some of these issues that you guys are concerned about. But at the same time, come on, <laughs> this is this is ridiculous. I I think we need more models of that, and I hope that's something people walk away from uh, this book because you can learn from a lot of different people. You don't have to agree with them on everything. Yeah, I, I think one thing that that has always struck me with regards to Keller as well. I mean, just you mentioned the Princeton debacle in twenty seventeen. And I remember just being so impressed when he was the last to leave the room because he was addressing every questioner and addressing every person that wanted to speak with him. He wasn't embittered. He didn't, you know, he wasn't raw with him. He wasn't just languishing or anything like that. But he was kind of joyfully and patiently addressing people who came to him and, sp- and spoke with him. And that really impressed me. Um, and just looking at that and seeing, realizing this man's, this man's a pastor uh, deep down. You know, that's really who he is. And I think, you know, even recently, in a recent conversation, the thing that he's thinking about right now, even in the middle of another health crisis, is he's thinking about how do I take these ideas? I mean, we had a conversation just recently, and I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this, and he was thinking about how do I share, you know, Alasdair McIntyre's emotivism to the 12-year-old that I'm speaking to right now? And it's like, (laughs) can you help me with that? And I'm like, okay. I think you got other things to worry about, but I'm surprised <laughs> that this is what you want to talk yeah. about. And I was just really shocked, and I was I was thinking to myself, okay, all right, this is this is it was a, you know it was a night phone call, and I thought it was about something else, but that's what he was thinking about, you know, in the middle of a medical procedure. And I was just again struck by the fact that this man, at the end of the day, he's a pastor and he's a reform mm-hmm. pastor, and I hope people really see that even through this book as well. Ecclesial revivalist is the term that he uses in Center Church that I think is the most apt description of him, because if you said pastor, that would be an absolutely important description of him. But if you didn't have the revivalist part in there, you'd miss that formative stream, especially coming out of Edwards, especially coming out of his own experience to the Jesus movement a convert during that period of time through a revival, then later seeing a revival in New York. Okay, you put those two things together. He's he's an ecclesial revivalist. And that makes that makes a lot of sense. And, and which which can help to 
to see how he might be he might be similar to other neo-Calvinists, but also might be different from in some other ways as mm-hmm. well. Um, that's why you just you cannot subsume him entirely under any stream. He just he'll he'll toss you some curveball. All of a sudden, you're like, oh well, I I didn't really see that coming. Like the Elizabeth Elliot one, I'm thinking, oh. I had no idea that Elizabeth Elliot was a major influence in your life. So, yeah, he just can't be subsumed in those categories. Just an incredibly curious, curious person who is, like I said, I, I think an ecclesial revivalist. The, the, the neo-Calvinist tradition has such a um, history of, of doing this work of theological synthesis, and I wonder if that's one of the reasons that Tim connect with, has connected with it in his later life so much. But I'm, I'm curious, Colin, do you think that this project of theological synthesis that so many recognize and you highlight so often in the book is something that Keller was self-conscious about from early, or is it more a derivative of, of his personality and gifting? I do think it's derivative. I, I think it's, I think it's intuitive. Um, I, I've never gotten any sense that this was some sort of well-defined project that he wanted to, to, to pass along to everyone else, it seems to be an intuitive response to his own personal makeup, as well as his um, his own exposure to eclecticism in theology at Gordon Conwell specifically, as well as through InterVarsity. So I think that was just his formative exposure was, I'm learning from Ed Clowney right now and his in his work, I mean, as and Clowney is the president of Westminster Seminary, is hiking it over to Bucknell University to do an evangelistic talk on existentialism because he he did his he did a, a master's degree at Yale on Kierkegaard, and everybody at Bucknell is obsessed with Camus, and so we're going to have this big evangelistic talk, sort of like those those in those experiences were profoundly influential to him. So okay, you know, so first I. I, I hear this talk and I'm thinking, wow, yeah, that kind of intellectual apologetic evangelism. Then I go on a retreat with InterVarsity with Ed Clowney, and he gives a talk on the church, and I'm thinking, oh, okay, well, I guess I'm, I guess, I guess the church is important. Then Clowney says, where should you, you know, where should, and he says, where, do, where should I go to seminary? Well, you're not reformed, so don't go to Westminster. You should go to Gordon Conwell. Oh, okay, but then who does he find at Gordon Conwell? He finds Ed Clowney. And Ed Clowney then gives these amazing, you know, Christ-centered in all of Scripture lectures that just change his and Kathy's lives forever. So I do think that's where the biographical storytelling is important, the kind of inductive methodology, because I'm not sure you could, I'm not sure you could, you could say there was sort of a concerted systematic effort to lay this all out ahead of time. I just don't think that's that's how it worked for Tim. So what do you think that means for the reception of Tim Keller? You know, so there's so many people across the world who read the finished product and really love it. And um, But if, if you're telling us that the finished product comes together, not, not chaotically, I mean, he's a tremendously intentional intellect, but it comes together in an, something like an uncoordinated way. Uh, and the end product, you know, the the like the coherence of it is quite a thing to behold. It's, it's deeply impressive. But if 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 it hasn't, if this is the way that the end product has emerged, for example, um, yeah, what does that mean for how we should receive him? Yeah. Is the lesson that that um, that it's not like systematically developed to the point that um, that you know that like maybe you is the takeaway that that like when we asked you before. Um, yeah. what, what could we learn from this? And the first thing you went to was be really curious, yeah. be a lifelong learner. Um, yeah. Is that what we should take away in the reception of Keller and how we imitate him in some sense and imitate the best in him? I think so, yes, James. But um, again, I'm, I'm a journalist, and so I think about these things and sometimes, uh, sometimes overly anecdotal, which can, be, which can be a problem, especially for scholarship. But I also like to think about things about, say, writing an obituary. Okay, so when you're writing an obituary, you really have to focus down on what is somebody's signal contributions, their self-understanding, their, their, the difference that they made in the world. Okay, if I'm thinking about Tim, 
all of a sudden, I, I can describe him as this expansive thinker who's got all these different ideas going in a lot of different directions. But at his core, there is a very clearly defined project, and that is gospel-centered theology for all of life, especially deployed in evangelistic and apologetic endeavors on the frontiers of secularism. It's kind of a, a very, like, wordy phrase there, but there is a core. That that core is, from the beginning, he's always had this view, and, and Corey and Gray, this is why your book's definition of neo-Calvinism is simply this all-life theology, this all-life perspective. That was Tim. He was never stuck in a pietistic ditch. He was a pietist, but he never got stuck there. It was always about the difference it would make in the world, in the church, kind of like an outward thrust. And then, I mean, he adds these different elements. You know, Jack Miller doesn't come around until later. Really helps to define, because Jack Miller's language is the gospel-centered stuff. That's where he borrowed it from. But Tim understood it in a different way as a way of, of describing a lot of the project he was already doing, which was to synthesize this, not this, not that, but this. And that's a very neo-Calvinist perspective on things. Um, so he, so he, I, I do think that's, whether it was intuitive, it was instinctive, you can clearly see that from the beginning there is a, the gospel is the core of everything that we do. It has an outward thrust that affects all of our lives. By the way, Barbara Boyd, InterVarsity, her lordship illustration that was so such a big deal for Tim. I don't have any. I don't have any um, evidence that Barbara Boyd was influenced by neo Calvinism. She was influenced by C. Stacy Woods, who was influenced by Martin Lloyd Jones. I don't know if there's any connections there, but the point is, she gives this lordship illustration about how he is the Lord, you know, that Jesus is the Lord of all. You can't accept him into one little part of your life. He has to take over your whole life. Okay, maybe that's not neo-Calvinism exactly, but he's got those inclinations from the very beginning, from his immediate conversion. So, you know, gospel-centered theology for all of life, and ultimately then for all the world, and specifically in cities, there's the Harvey Kahn part in there, and specifically on the frontiers of secularism. That's the neo-Calvinist, it's the Bavink, it's the, it's the modern but orthodox, that synthesis in there. So I do think, James, there is a coherent narrative in there, but you do have to kind of piece it together from a few places. But if you think about that, someday, hopefully a long time from now, there's going to be all these tributes and, and um, obituaries written about Tim, that gospel-centered ministry applied to especially global cities in a post-Christendom era you know, through church planting, especially. There's Harvey in there uh, as well. That that is the core of of his project. It's just not the limits of his project, but it's the core of his project. When I try and think about, you know, like if, let's say there's some other branch of the multiverse where Tim Keller had stayed, where he'd gone to work for the U.S. Postal Service, as you show <laughs> us, he almost did, and if he'd never become a pastor, and I try and think about, okay, how different would evangelicalism be or reformed theology be um, if he'd done that, and. Um, I mean, I think so, to to my mind, some of the major historical shifts that he has been at the center of are, as you say, um, to be much more focused on the gospel reaching urban areas. Absolutely. Um, so if I, even if I think of UK evangelical culture as I grew up in it in the 1980s, um, evangelicals now, my children are growing up in a city. Um, I grew up in a suburb in a, in a smaller town, for example. Um, the, the mentality that Christians have towards cities as desirable places to be has changed. Um, and that's uh, and Tim has played a massive role in that. But I think and, and, and the church planting element that you mentioned as well, is something that that he has had a decisive contribution to. Uh, so again, if I think back to um, evangelical culture in the UK, which was very derivative of, of or it was very America-led, I guess, in the 1980s and 90s when I was growing up, it was very, um, you know, Billy Graham evangelism. And then the whatever kind of follow-up happened was really an afterthought. And it was very detached from 
Well, it, it wasn't closely bound to the life of the church, not enough anyway. And the idea that actually you evangelize by planting churches, I mean, that, that wasn't a mainstream idea in the 80s and 90s. But now that, that's completely standard on this side of the Atlantic. And again, I think in historical terms, um, that's, uh, you know, Tim has, has played such an important role in that, in that shift. Colin, uh, how has Tim received your work and how much have you guys <laughs> talked about it and uh, will, will, will he talk about it? <laughs> I mean, we've talked about it I- I- extensively. Tim is deeply uncomfortable with talking about himself. Yeah. And I, I don't I don't know the reasons why I'm not, you know, I'm this book is not a psychoanalysis. Um I, the, as as deep as that sort of observation gets is that you can see why grace was so dramatically transformative in his life when you consider his family you know i mean that that's about as deep as i get with that kind of assessment but um yeah i mean i he just you're not you're just not going to spend any time with tim where he feels real comfortable talking about himself and so what he what he will talk about is in part how just to kind of where do i fit how might people as stuff we've been talking about here how might people categorize me think about me and what i was trying to do not because of any sort of concern about his legacy per se but because of how much he cares about the things that he believes in the institutions that he's built that stuff he really cares about and so you know he really he really cares about ensuring that the Gospel Coalition will thrive, that Redeemer City to City will thrive, that Redeemer Presbyterian Church will thrive going forward. You know, he really he deeply invested in those institutions, which, by the way, is a difference in his generation from Billy Graham as well. Other uh, key leaders like Tim Keller have been church leaders, as opposed to the previous generation, these uh, evangelists and, and parachurch leaders. It's a major change there uh, for him. So we've talked about it a lot, but he uh it's this is interesting you guys have probably experienced this with him as well but um when you ask him a question about himself it's almost like you can watch him visually visually move in 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 a conversation where you're not talking face to face with him all of a sudden he shifts to a position above the conversation and begins to assess the dynamics of the conversation he's just such an analyst in that sense, so so when you're talking with him, it's just it's not this direct uh, discourse. It's often just a, a kind of distanced analysis of what's happening in there. And I appreciate that he. I'll just I'll boil it down to this: um, the greatest gift he could give me as a writer on this project was to give me enough information to be able to say, "Okay, I'm going to be accurate here." but enough freedom so that I could incorporate some criticism of him and also enough freedom to say, well, it's not necessarily the book I would have written to which I respond. Well, Tim, you definitely never would have written an autobiography. So this is the best we're going to get about this stuff uh, for future generations to be able to assess as they, as they try to kind of shepherd your different interests in institutions and projects and academic um, perspectives into the future. So I'm just, I'm really grateful to him. He's, uh, he's given me enough to work with, but also enough distance where, um, you know, nobody's going to think, oh, this was just Tim telling Colin what to do. That's definitely not the case. So you just mentioned um, that the book does give you scope to, to critique Tim as well. Um, I want to ask a question about what you hope the book achieves when we think about criticisms towards Tim. So I, mean, I find watching the way that people interact with him on Twitter, is it can be truly bizarre um, <laughs> where he, he can make just very like, uncontroversial statements. And um, there, there's just, there are a lot of people out there who, who just don't have much interest in um, seeing the, uh, you know whatever he says as anything other than, you know, like a red rag to a bull, regardless of how you know normal the thing that he that he might put on Twitter would be. Um, so there's that kind of divisive, or you know, reaction to whatever he puts out 
where there'll be many, many, many people who will be deeply appreciative, and there are other people for whom he can do no right. Um, how so and, and how you've written the book, um, how, and you were just mentioning there that you know you've given yourself space for critique as well. Um, do you think that, or how do you hope that your book might um, enter that kind of a fray? You know, enter the immediate reception of Tim Keller at the moment. Do you think uh, how, yeah. how how will it serve that um, divided readership? Well, I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm we're, we're doing this discussion just shortly before I'm going to have an opportunity to hang out with you, James and Gray, and talk about a lot of these different things. So I'll give a little bit of a preview of, of what I'm hoping to discuss together as we think about cultural apologetics and carrying on some of these things. Um, I think the algorithmic age is especially difficult for persuasive discourse and institution building. It's very difficult for those things. I don't think, I don't really see anybody out there who's yet figured out how to make those things work because all there are very, the, the digital age is deeply corrosive toward any sort of institutions. It's, it's Yuval Levin's switch from performative or from formative to performative, which by the way is a deep influence on Tim, that perspective of institutions. And so what I, I want us to wrestle with in this book is that so many people criticize Tim for his third wayism. Um, I I'm I, I can see some of the criticism because it does it does kind of move him into that analytical mode sometimes when maybe just a direct statement, this is right, this is wrong, would be more helpful. Um, but at the same time, I think we've got to understand that every incentive right now accrues to the extremes that draw strength from hatred from the other side. But when you're engaged in persuasive discourse, especially as an evangelist, an apologist, and you're engaged in institution building as a pastor, the digital trends are very difficult to be able to, to navigate. And I hope that we have a chance to try to wrestle through with Tim as an example of somebody who's built a lifetime of credibility of how difficult it is, even for him, to navigate those dynamics of this age. Uh, as somebody who, of course, is is working with him closely in, in several different institutional capacities in this book, I can tell you that I, I will spend a fair bit of time in one institutional space where people think Tim is the great enemy of the gospel in the church today, and I will flip immediately to another institutional space where he, the same thing is true, but for the opposite reasons from people. And I think that's what I hope the book will help to engender is what does this persuasive, apologetic, evangelistic, institution building work look like now? Because even Tim is having a hard time with it and he's got a whole lifetime of credibility behind him where some of the rest of us are still in the middle of that or on the outset of it. So yeah, James, that's, that's, that's what I'm thinking. I, I don't, I don't have answers for that, but that's, that's, Part of what I'm hoping people will wrestle through in there. I also hope that people, in terms of the immediate reception, this really goes to Gray's point from earlier. I think people will be likely to say, oh, Tim's more X than I thought he was. And that could be different kinds of things. It could be, oh, he's actually more conservative <laughs> than I thought he was because of his experience at Westminster Seminary or Elizabeth Elliot or something like that. And then I just hope people have the context to understand. In fact, Tim and I were just talking about that this week. We were discussing his views on women in ministry, and, and we were discussing how he made a missiological decision. Now, you could disagree with this. That's fine. Maybe, maybe we can and should, and maybe times have changed such that we can't do this anymore. But his missiological perspective in New York was we're going to emphasize what Christians agree on, and how they disagree from non-Christians, as opposed to what Christians disagree on with each other, women in ministry being one of those. Institutionally, they're committed in one direction, but in terms of emphasis, didn't make that a major emphasis. Okay, does that still work? Or maybe do we have to actually be more specific and defend certain views, especially as it's become increasingly unpopular, 
and therefore more difficult to run from? I don't know uh, the answers to those questions, but I'm, that's what I'm hoping we'll, we'll have more opportunity to discuss in light of this book. Great. Well, I guess it's one of the highest aspirations that we all have as authors that our books um, never just end a conversation, but they always have a life beyond themselves like that. So it's been great to, to take part in that together with you, Colin, today to talk about your book, um, Tim Keller, His Spiritual and Intellectual Formation, published by Zondervan. Um, so, um, yeah, so thanks for joining us to our listeners. Um, please do subscribe to the podcast and whichever podcast app you use. Uh, but for now, this is Grace in Common.